So it's, it's a great pleasure to be here talking um, on, on behalf of both Oxpeace and the Transitional Justice Research Group about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. I thought I should start, however, with just a brief word about the, um, about the Bonavero Institute for Human Rights, which um, has been established in the law faculty with, uh, but is going to be housed at Mansfield. Those of you who visited Mansfield recently will have seen that there's a large plastic box in the far corner, which is basically the building wrapped at this stage. Um, it will be completed in the late summer, and um, the institute will be housed in the lower two floors um, of, the, uh, of that building. Um, the aim of the institute is to promote research in human rights, writ pretty broadly, so to cover um, public law, human rights, um, constitutional design, we're not going to read human rights narrowly. To do so both looking at um, national jurisdictions but also at international law um, and to foster conversations about human rights, um, public law and constitutional law both between the academy, between scholars and practitioners and across jurisdictions and within jurisdictions. So we hope that we will have um, a good outreach from Oxford uh, to various parts of the world um, and to, to generate conversation about human rights. I accepted this offer, I have to say, at the end of May 2016, at which stage the issue of human rights seemed a very important one. Um, it has only seemed to have got more and more important and more and more uh, um, threatened in the, in the months that have gone by. So um, I, I, I would have preferred if we hadn't had all the dramatic events that we did have of 2016, but it certainly means that the work that the Institute, I hope, will be able to do uh, will be of, of real importance. So turning then to talk about the TRC, and I don't think any South African can approach talking about the TRC in an entirely uh, distant and fully impartial way. Um, I myself uh, had clients and people I knew who were uh, victims of um, apartheid death squads and um, apartheid state um, brutality. And, and you can't think about the TRC. Well, I find it difficult to think about the TRC without thinking about those people and thinking about those people's families, although many of those people have now been dead uh, more than 30 years. So it's really just, although obviously when judges often speak, we, 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 we've had the sense that you bring to the task impartiality, and the impartiality is something which everybody retains a duty to work at. But one of the ways I often try to work at impartiality is by starting out by knowing where I don't feel terribly impartial, and I didn't feel terribly impartial about the project of the TRC, and I still don't. Um, so I'm going to talk today, there's a sort of an outline uh, of, of um, what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to talk about the history of it, I'm going to talk about the legislation, I'm going to talk about the work of the TRC, some of the case law in which I was involved, um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit perhaps outside of the field of law about the TRC and, and, and some of the different perspectives on the TRC which I think are important in thinking about the work of transitional justice. So starting with the history, um, you will all know that in February 1990, a most unexpected, or at least unexpected to me, speech was given by then President F.W. de Klerk in the South African Parliament at the opening of Parliament, uh, in which he announced that he was going to, or the 
state was going to unban the liberation movements and release the political prisoners. It wasn't something I expected on that morning, but from that moment on, a process of transition began in South Africa. And it was a long transition. It was a transition that really lasted from February 1990 in terms of just constitutional constitution making until February 1997, when our current 1996 constitution came into force. And the uh, process of negotiation was not a steady, forward-moving, linear process, as so often when we look back at history, it seems to have been. It remained uncertain, uh, certainly until very shortly before the first democratic elections on the 27th of April 1994. There was heightened violence in the country. It was uh, an uncertain time, a time of hope, but also a time of, of, um, of, of deep anxiety because it didn't seem always likely that we were going to produce a democratic constitution. And again, I say that because so often, you know, you read these dates in history books and it just seems to have been, oh, well, of course, it would all just have gone very smoothly and it would all have been fine. And, but actually, it wasn't. It was, it was a difficult, it was a difficult uh, six years. One of the reasons for the difficulty was the fact that the apartheid government, the National Party government, uh, demanded uh, of the liberation movements that there would be an amnesty process or that there would be amnesty for gross human rights violations that had occurred during the apartheid period. And needless to say, this was not uh, um, a demand which was warmly received uh, by the liberation movements, even though I think pretty practically right from the outset they realised that it was a demand they were going to have to concede in some way or another. Um, so although um, the, the, it wasn't and enthusiastically received. I don't think many of the liberation, uh, rep representatives of the liberation movements went into the negotiations thinking that they would be able to get an agreement which did not involve some form of amnesty. And so right early on, there was talk of the idea of a truth commission. And by then, there had been a series of truth commissions, particularly in Latin America, following on the transitions from the time of the generals in Latin America, focusing on gross human rights violations. Um, and so the ideas of those truth commissions began to move into public discourse and, um, and the idea of trying to link this amnesty demand on the one hand with a truth commission on the other uh, emerged as a potential solution to what might otherwise have been an impasse uh, in the negotiations. Um, so when that, it became clear that in fact the National Party government and the liberation movements were going to be able to reach agreement on that, they didn't actually spell that out in the, in the um, transitional arrangements. So just to fill you in again, what happened was in that first four years there was a process of constitutional negotiation um, which produced an interim or transitional constitution which was going to regulate the period from when the first democratic elections were held until a final or fuller constitution could be adopted, which would be drafted and negotiated in the first democratic elected legislature, which would sit as a constitutional assembly. So the new legislature would, as it were, have two hats. It would be a legislature, and then it would sit as well as a constitutional assembly. And that was how the... Um, interim constitution was formulated and then there was an obligation for that constitutional assembly 
to draft a constitution that complied with certain principles that were annexed to the interim constitution or the transitional constitution. And the genesis of the constitutional court lay in it being identified as a body that would determine whether the final constitution did in fact comply with those interim, those principles that were attached to the um, to the interim or transitional constitution. And then, of course, there was a need to establish a new court, a court in which there was a greater sense of legitimacy and confidence. And uh, so the new constitutional court was, um, was provided for in the interim or transitional constitution, appointed under it, and then had as one of its first tasks uh, the decision of de determining whether the constitution that was um, produced by the constitutional assembly was indeed consistent with the transitional constitution. So two-phase approach to constitution making. But the, in the interim constitution then, the reference to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission came in the epilogue, sometimes called, I think, rather inelegantly, the postamble to the interim constitution. And that epilogue, I haven't given you all of it, but it is important, I think, uh, uh, certainly was always textually interpretively important for courts, and particularly the constitutional court. Um, but also was perhaps one of the parts of the Constitution which most lyrically or most obviously touched on uh, the real issues that had driven the, the constitutional negotiation. So it read, This Constitution provides a historic bridge between the past of a deeply divided society characterized by strife, conflict, untold suffering and injustice, and a future founded on the recognition of human rights democracy and peaceful coexistence and development opportunities for all South Africans, irrespective of color, race, class, belief, or sex. These can now be addressed on the basis that there is a need for understanding, but not for vengeance, a need for reparation, but not for retaliation, a need for Ubuntu, but not for victimization. And in order to advance such reconciliation and reconstruction, amnesty shall be granted in respect of acts, omissions, and offenses associated with political objectives and committed in the course of the conflicts of the past. So there in that epilogue is the root of the constitutional envisaging of the truth and reconciliation process. So it then continues to say, to this end, Parliament under this constitution shall adopt a law determining a firm cut-off date, which will be a date after 8th October 1990 and before 6th December 1993, and providing for the mechanisms, criteria, and procedures, including tribunals, if any, through which such amnesty shall be dealt with at any time after the law has passed. So what happened after the adoption of the interim constitution was that we had first democratic elections, the constitutional assembly gets established, but it also sits as a parliament. And for the first six months, there were very active discussions and negotiations around what this amnesty process was going to look like. Um, it was one of the most uh, discussed pieces of legislation that came out of Parliament in that first democratic Parliament in that first year. It was called, um, nowadays, uh, it, it, it's a sort of slightly misnomer of a title, it's students always find it difficult to find, it was called the Promotion of National Unity and Reconciliation Act of 1995 but most colloquially it's referred to as the TRC Act because it established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the Act itself provided that the TRC was to establish as complete a picture as possible of the causes, nature, and extent of the gross violation of human rights 
committed between 1 March 1960 and 10 May 1994 by conducting investigations and holding hearings. I'm going to come back in a moment to talk about the definition of this phrase gross violation of human rights and I'm also going to come back and talk about the period because many of the criticisms of the TRC and its processes hinge on this goal or task that was defined in this way by the legislation for the TRC. Secondly, the TRC was required to facilitate the granting of amnesty for crimes associated with a political objective to those who made full disclosure of all relevant facts. Now, in relation to this task, I think it's important to realize that there was an even-handedness within the TRC about the way it treated the crimes of the apartheid state and the way it treated uh, human rights violations by the liberation movements. This has led, I think, uh, there was dis there's discomfort about this because there's a sense that, quite clearly, although uh, liberation movements did engage in, in human rights violations, very often the overarching purpose of doing so was to bring about a more just South Africa, and they were conducting... Uh, affairs in very difficult circumstances where they were being targeted by a very powerful state, being the South African state. Whereas on the other hand, you find the conduct and purposes of the apartheid state, which was to shore up a, a, a racist, effectively a racist um, a government, an illegitimate government, uh, seems to be, there doesn't seem to be an equivalence there. So there's a discomfort about this equivalence, but it's written into the legislation and it's it quite clearly one of the bones of the negotiations sticking out in the legislation. Thirdly, the TRC was asked to establish the fate of victims and make recommendations regarding reparations, and finally to compile a complete report. So the TRC that was established by the South African legislation had some special features which distinguished it from the, um, um, the truth commissions that had preceded it, particularly those in Latin America. And the first was that there was no blanket amnesty. There was not a simply... If you work for the apartheid state, you get amnesty. Individuals had to earn amnesty by telling the truth, by disclosing fully what it was they had done, which constituted a gross human rights violation. And that, that uh, truth, that statement, was then assessed by an amnesty committee to determine whether it did constitute a full disclosure. Secondly, hearings were held in public although particularly in relation to the amnesty hearings, there had originally been a plan to hold them behind closed doors, but that was changed in the drafting of the legislation, and both the hearings um, held, which I'm going to talk about more in a moment, by the human rights violations part of the TRC and the amnesty hearings were generally held in public, although some amnesties were granted without a hearing, and refused, ditto, without a hearing. And thirdly... Um, Witnesses who had been subjected to gross human rights violations testified, often in the presence of perpetrators, but not generally in the adversarial mode of a court hearing. And you find that this model of hearings of people who have been subjected to human rights violations has been reproduced in a whole range of other settings. One seeing it, for example, in commissions set up to investigate child sexual assault, where Basically, testimony is taken from people who are survivors, or in the old language, victims of um, sexual assault, but generally not subjected to the kind of testing interrogation 
of cross-examination and in an adversarial mode. And although there were exceptions to that in the TRC process, by and large, that is what happened. It's an interesting question from a lawyer's perspective how we should weight this testimony. I remember um, being phoned by a newspaper editor about uh, you know, a couple of hours after the first hearings had started and a former newspaper editor and he's saying to me, but you know, this is just untested. You know, these claims are wild. They're, they may or may not be true and, and how are we meant to report them? And, you know, there was a great anxiety about this idea that people could just get up in a public space and tell a story and not be tested at all. And it, it goes, I think, to the heart of understanding what we thought this process was all about. Um, and, of course, that continued. Some of the stories, uh, there was absolutely no doubt about the veracity, and often they were corroborated by other evidence. And certainly in relation to incidents of which I was familiar, a huge amount of the evidence was, as I understood it, absolutely true. But we, we can't be 100% sure, and one can't, in many in processes that uh, run like this, of exactly how true the evidence is. And that's not to say that I really agree with Wigmore, the great scholar of the law of evidence, who tells us that cross-examination is the great engine of truth. I've never thought that, and I still don't think that. But there is something about being tested, being asked to, to being, having questions put to you by people who are also involved there, which can sometimes give a fuller picture of a set of events. So turning then to the three arms of TRC, which are really mirror those three functions that I spoke about. The first was the Human Rights Violations Committee, which was the most high-profile uh, committee of the TRC. It was the one over which um, uh, Archbishop Tutu mostly presided, and it was moved around the country hearing evidence from victims and survivors of gross human rights violations. They sat in small towns and big towns. Um, they tried to go to where the events were most, um, were most relevant, um, and the hearings were in, in, in public spaces so that members of the public could attend. The Amnesty Committee, on the other hand, was a much more legally familiar sort of a body. It was presided over by judges. There were about 10 or 12 judges who sat on the Amnesty Committee over time. They, uh, where, they held where they held hearings in public, it looked much more like a, an ordinary court case. Uh, they often held hearings when there was an application for amnesty which was opposed by, um, uh, by those people who'd been injured by a perpetrator. And so you often had cross-examination by counsel for, the, for, for victims or survivors and cross-examination um, um, uh, of, of victims and survivors by people representing the amnesty, people seeking amnesty. So these looked much more like um, much more like court cases. As I've said to you, the test there was always whether there'd been a full disclosure, and whether the events had or the the, the acts, uh, uh, the violations had been pursuant to a, a political purpose. And in fact, quite a lot of the amnesties that were refused were refused on the grounds that in fact they were not pursuant to a political purpose. Um, but there was also several that were refused on the grounds that had not been full disclosure. And then the third arm was the Reparation and Rehabilitation Committee, which in many ways was the sort of um, uh, the weakest arm and the one in which I think people feel uh, most, un most concerned about you know, the events that, that occurred, not so much because of the work of the committee, but the way in which it was responded to by Parliament. 
So I've spoken already about the um, human rights violations hearing. Just to give you an idea, the TRC received reports from more than 22,000 victims in the course of its uh, two or two and a half years of operation. 2,200 of those testified in public hearings held around the country. And in all, the victims described more than 37,000 incidents of gross human rights violations. Um, these hearings were widely covered in the press, and in fact, there were um, there were on some radio broadcasters sort of daily summaries of what what had happened. And I, I have to say, they were grueling listening. Um, the um, the evidence was really quite harrowing. Um, and I think that if you read the accounts of people who were either commissioners or regular reporters on the events of the TRC, you do get a sense of the harrowing experience of listening to this testimony over the course of two years. Um, the second body, as I mentioned, was the Amnesty Committee. Um, there were more than 7,000 applications for amnesty. The vast majority of those came from prisoners. Um, and of them, uh, 5,500 were determined without a public hearing. Many of the ones coming from prisons, and that you can't actually glean this so much from the TRC report. One actually needs to speak to the judges who were involved with them. Many of them came from people serving sentences in prison who tried to, to recharacterize their offenses as offences with political purpose. And that's why I was saying that a significant number of them failed on that basis. There were some reviews. The TRC decisions were subject to judicial review and were overturned in some circumstances, but generally not on this ground. Um, only a small number of amnesty applications were received from members of the apartheid government security apparatus. So, in fact, I, I'm not sure that this is correct, but I, several commentators say that there was no application from a member of the South African Defence Force, now the South African National Defence Force, the Army, who had been involved in a whole range of um, human rights violations in townships over the, particularly the period from 1976 onwards and even more so from 19, between 1985 and, and 1991 or 1992. So there were no applications uh, from from the, from the SADF. There were quite a few from uh, the uh, South African Police uh, Force, as it was then called, um, but none from anybody senior in the apartheid government. Famously, the former president, P.W. Butter, um, who had been uh, state president or, and president in the period up to uh, 1998 or so, um, was subpoenaed. Uh, to give evidence by the TRC, and he refused to, to attend, failed to attend, and in fact he was prosecuted and convicted of failing to attend, and then it was overturned on appeal. Um, but the, um, the, the, in the sense that uh, it's pretty clear, as a ma matter of historical fact, I think, that decisions around certainly some of the state-sponsored murders went high up in the apartheid state. We never really, in this process, got to the bottom of who made those decisions. So uh, there was um, a, a famous example where um, there was an intercepted communication between the, one of the uh, State Security Council, if I remember rightly, and a, a police station in the Eastern Cape, which talked about permanent removal of of a group of activists who were indeed subsequently murdered, and there were there was a range of sort of 
silly arguments put as to what permanent removal meant, but there was nobody ever actually prosecuted for that. Um, there were several legal challenges to the grant of amnesty, uh, but most of them were unsuccessful. There were also several cases where people applied for amnesty that were unsuccessful. The, perhaps the most famous example um, is the example of um, Clive Darby Lewis and Yanis Valus, who were the murderers of Chris Hani, a very eminent leader of the uh, African National Congress, uh, and he was murdered just outside his home um, in 1992, if I remember rightly, in April 1992. Three, um, three was it? Thank you. 1993. Thank you, Liz. Um, and um, they uh, were convicted of murder and, um, and then applied for amnesty, but were refused on the grounds a mixture of um, that they hadn't made a full disclosure um, and that the, the questionable uh, issue as to whether they had acted for political purposes or not. We could actually have a debate about that decision, but um, that uh, was taken on review but was unsuccessful. Thirdly, um, the Reparations and Rehabilitation Committee uh, identified just under 20,000 of the victims to be paid compensation and re recommended that they each be paid approximately 30,000 rand, which is about... £1,700 for five years in today's money. Um, the government was very slow to accept this recommendation, and which led to criticism and protest. Uh, and eventually, in June 2003, Parliament approved a single payment of between 30000 and 40000 to the approximately 17,000 victims identified by the TRC. So that's more or less what the TRC did. Um, it worked relatively fast. Um, it held hearings, it's hearings between 96 and 98, and in October 98 it produced the first five volumes of its report, which were basically the, 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 the large uh, um, part of its report. Its report was supplemented in t by two further reports in 2002, <coughs> one which reported on the work of the Amnesty Committee, which had taken longer, there'd been legal challenges, the processes of processing 7,000 amnesty applications took longer, and the other, which listed the names of the 22,025 victims identified by the TRC. Um, the, I think there are, I think in assessing um, a process of this sort, it's important to realize that its roots here lay in compromise. It lay in compromise, um, particularly for the liberation movements, who would have preferred to have held people to account for gross human rights violations, but that compromise was seen to be uh, worthwhile given the possibility of transition that it held out. But there are also questions, so leaving aside that, about which we can debate um, uh, you know, as, to, as, as to the nature of that compromise, there are also design and structural questions. So. The work of the TRC was focused on this definition of gross human rights violations, which were defined as the killing, abduction in the legislation, the killing, abduction, torture, or severe ill treatment of any person, and any attempt, conspiracy, incitement, instigation, this is lawyers going a bit overboard, command or procurement of the killing, abduction, torture, or severe ill treatment of any person. And the TRC adopted a working definition of, this, of the one open-ended phrase there, which is severe ill-treatment as acts or omissions that deliberately and directly inflict severe mental or physical suffering and included rape, punitive solitary confinement, sexual assault, 
abuse, harassment, physical beatings, burnings, shootings, poisonings, mutilation, detention without trial, banishment and banning, and the destruction of homes. So all of these things happened. All of them were gross human rights violations, and all of them fell within the mandate of the TRC. But what it did not explicitly cover were many of the most routinized, brutal aspects of apartheid. For example, the policy of forced removals. Policy of, under the policy of forced removals, we know from the work of the Surplus People Project that more than three million people were forcibly removed from their homes in the period between 1950 and 1980. The process of conviction and imprisonment under the past laws, which were um, vigorously um, uh, enforced and which were laws which limited people's freedom of movement uh, by and large up to being outside of the cities unless people had actually been born in the city. And many people would have been uh, arrested and convicted and imprisoned under the past laws many times in their lives. Um, I sometimes look back with despair and wonder where is the state that used to be able to convict and imprison people every 10 seconds or something, which was a state they used to... We seem to have lost that level of efficiency. Um, but it was no doubt a brutalization of people's family lives, of people's, um, uh, and of the sense of who people were, and entirely done on the basis of race. And, you know, the police would cruise down the street and would stop uh, anybody that they thought looked like they might not have a pass and demand a pass. And if you didn't have it, you'd be loaded in the back and generally no opportunity to contact your family. And then you would be generally sentenced to 90 days hard labor, which would generally mean you'd be taken out to a rural area and you'd work on a farm for 90 days. So none of this was covered within gross human rights by violations, nor were the denial of employment and educational <coughs> opportunities on grounds of race, which was, you know, the, the raison d'etre and, and just the way the world worked in South Africa. Um, so the, the deep harms caused by routine and pervasive racial discrimination just did not really feature within the TRC. Towards the end of the hearings, there was a sort of realization by the TRC that they, they ought to try and deal with this. And so they had several hearings which focused on particular aspects of or institutions in South African life, like the judiciary, like the press, like business, and asked people to come along and talk about their, the, those institutions' relationship with the Pudtate. But it was it was it, 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 it wasn't possible, really, to, I think, fix the design error in the remit by doing uh, those hearings. Um, of course, that was partly because, the, the, for really two reasons. One was because the TRC was designed to deal with amnesty, and amnesty was there for gross human rights violations. Nobody was going to suggest, I think, that somebody who had just arrested somebody once was committing a gross human rights violation. So it was aimed at unlawful behavior by security forces and by the liberation movements. But it was also because, really until the South African example, most examples of truth commissions had been dealing with the, um, the conduct of rogue state security forces in Latin America, where disappearances were the defining aspect of uh, gross human rights violations, um, beatings and murders and so on. The South African experience of legislated, routinized, um, harmful racial discrimination was, was unique, or certainly in, uh, up to that stage, unique to South Africa. And so, of course, didn't fit neatly within the mandate. Another problem is the dates. 
So clearly there was a lot of contestation about the date. And the date that was eventually fixed was 1960 to 1993. And of course, an enormous amount of uh, uh, illegitimate state or state human rights violations had occurred in the decades before 1960. We had the great struggles of the 1950s and even the 1940s. Um, so it was rather strange to have picked this cut-off date. Um, on the other hand, of course, the further you go back into history, the greater difficulties you have with testimony and evidence and so on. Um, and in fact, if you, if you look at the actual um, gross human rights violations which were reported to the TRC, the vast majority of them had actually happened in the 10 years prior to the TRC being established. We didn't pick up a lot of stuff from the 60s and the 70s, actually. And of course, that's again partly because these were fresh in people's minds um, and, 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 and that's how testimony tends to work. So the TRC acknowledged these structural weaknesses in its report. It said it had focused on the exceptional gross human rights violations as defined rather than on the more mundane but nevertheless traumatizing dimensions of apartheid life that affected every single black South African. This focus on the outrageous has drawn the nation's attention away from the more commonplace violations. The result is that ordinary South Africans do not see themselves as represented by those the commission defines as perpetrators failing to recognize the little perpetrator in each one of us. And I think there's a truth here um, that, that there was, it was, it was otherizing to talk about um, murder and gross human rights violations in ways which made people feel somehow that this was, this was what was wrong with apartheid and gosh, we didn't murder anybody so we're okay. There was, there was, there was definitely that, um, that, that aspect to it. And in some ways one, thinks when one's doing this that uh, a process of sparking off a more thorough reflection uh, would have been valuable. So that's just to give you an oversight of the, of the TRC. Now just to turn to talk a little bit about the case law because of course I came at the TRC from a, a professional capacity with, uh, from, from the, in the jurisprudence sense and the first case uh, and in many ways the main case concerning the T TRC was brought by um, some leaders of Azapo, one of the liberation movements, against the president. And the challenge was to a provision in the TRC Act which provided that the granting of amnesty would be civil and criminal amnesty. So that um, the extent of what the amnesty was, in other words, what amnesty meant, what liability it was releasing you from, was spelt out quite clearly in Section 20 of the Act, 27 sub-7, sub-8, sub-9, and sub-10. And the families of, um, of uh, people who had been murdered by the apartheid state in particular brought this claim on the grounds that they thought that this provision of the Act was inconsistent with the Constitution. They based their argument to some extent on international law, that the Geneva Conventions of 1949 obliged the state to prosecute perpetrators of gross human rights violations. And argue that the Constitution should be read consistent with that obligation. However, the court held that the epilogue, which I just read to you before, um, which contemplated the amnesty was explicit, and that section 27 had to be read sub was not inconsistent with the Constitution, because even if the Constitution protected fundamental human rights, including the right of access to court, it had those rights had to be read subject to the other provisions of the Constitution, which had clearly contemplated an amnesty. 
Academic criticism was levelled at the judgment not so much because of the outcome, even though I think we could have a debate about the outcome. Uh, I, I was convinced at the time that, that this was the nature of the deal that had been done and that was set in the interim constitution and survived into the 96th constitution and that it would have been improper for the court to have come to any other conclusion. But that's not because I don't think that the text couldn't be subjected to some debate. Um, but academic criticism was really around the court's failure to consider the duty to prosecute under the Geneva Conventions, something which is going to become a live issue if South Africa really does withdraw from the um, uh, uh, Statute of Rome. Um, again, I think that the court's view on that was nobody... Uh, there's an expression in South Africa, which is to eat mit lang tanda. Everybody felt about this case that we didn't really like it. Nobody felt good. There are cases where the outcomes you don't like. That's one of the disciplines of being a judicial officer, I think. And I think for almost everybody on the court, that's probably all of us felt like that here. Nobody wanted to say to families of victims, you can't recover um, damages from people who have been identified as perpetrators. But at the end of the day, it's not what we think is morally right. It is what the text it stands for. So the court's failure to deal with the international argument, although um, Justice Muhammad, who wrote the majority judgment, did deal with it to some extent, the critique coming from John Dugard, one of South Africa's most famous international lawyers, I think was a moving critique and one that I think certainly I felt had, uh, had, had some merit. This was a judgment, he said, that called for the broad brush of history, for an exposition of why apartheid was judged by the international community to be a crime against humanity, for an examination of the experience of other societies that have emerged from darkness, for an explanation of the reason why international law does not compel a society bent on reconciliation to prosecute those who have committed the most heinous crimes in the land of the state. So I think that generally the court was quite committed to this kind of jurisprudence, to a, to a rhetorical jurisprudence which set a framework which uh, rooted the constitutional project in South Africa's history. Hard to do in the Azarpo case. And I don't think anybody walked away from it feeling particularly delighted by the result. So the second case that came before the court in my time there came before almost, uh, uh, you know, more than 10 years later. And it related to um, um, a policeman called Dutoy, who had been convicted on four counts of murder in respect of the Motherwell Four. The Motherwell Four were a group of members of the security forces who had been who were who were murdered by being blown up in the police vehicle in which they were driving. And it became clear that a bomb was put into the vehicle and they were blown up. And the reason that for this murder was that it was suspected. One knows not how serious a suspicion this was, but it was suspected that they, these four, or some of them, were going to um, disclose to the public the nature of the clandestine and unlawful um, conduct of the Flakplas uh, part of the South African police. So the, the murder was to prevent them telling the story of what was happening, or what had happened in relation to this um, to this real agency for um, agency for state killings, um, uh, Flakplas. So Dutoy was, uh, um, was given the bomb and basically um, attached it to the vehicle and um, he and his uh, co-accused um, were sentenced, were convicted and sentenced to imprisonment. Um, and 
he was, his conviction automatically led to his being deemed to have been discharged from the police. Now, this was one of those amnesty applications that took quite a long time to run because what happened was that after he'd been convicted, he decided he would apply for amnesty. He um, was initially refused amnesty uh, by the amnesty committee on the grounds that this didn't constitute a public purpose. And um, he then uh, reviewed the decision um, in relation to that. And after that process had gone all the way up the court system, so it, it, he did several appeals within the court system up to the appellate division, um, the amnesty decision, the refusal of amnesty was overturned and he was eventually granted amnesty in about 2005, if I remember rightly, it might have been 2007. Um, and then what he wanted was to be reinstated as a member of the police. So then the question before the court was the proper interpretation of that provision, which says, where any person has been convicted of any offence associated with a political object in respect of which amnesty has been, has been granted, any entry or record of the conviction shall be deemed to be expunged from all official documents or records, and the conviction shall, for all purposes, including the application of any Act of Parliament or any other law, be deemed not to have taken place. So he argued that that meant that once he was finally granted amnesty, it would retroactively affect his discharge from the police, which had happened by operation of law on the date that he was convicted of, an, uh, in fact, sentenced. You had to be convicted and sentenced to more than a year. And, um, and, and that therefore, because this was a provision, a retroactive provision, um, uh, it, it, it would undo that and he could go back to being a member of the police. Presumably, although he didn't really promote this in court and continue to have been paid since whenever it was that he was originally convicted and sentenced. So the real question before the court was, properly construed, did the section mean that records would be expunged retroactively or only from the date of amnesty? In other words, did the amnesty take effect on the date of the amnesty and from that date onwards all records would be expunged? Or did, when the amnesty took place, if there were records that predated the amnesty, did it reach backwards and, and expunge them? And the court... Um, basically took the view that it did not operate retroactively. And one of the reasons for this, although I don't think it's very fully explored in the judgment, but I do remember discussing it, was that it was this recognition that if you had gone and sought amnesty before you were convicted and sentenced, you would never have got into that position. It would have been open and it would have been straightforward. He could always have applied for amnesty. Um, he was only convicted in about, uh, I think, 1998 or something like that. So he could have applied for amnesty earlier, but he left it. And of course, if he hadn't been convicted, then he wouldn't have had to apply for amnesty, wouldn't have to have told the story, etc. But the most important reason was that generally the court was unhappy that in the absence of an express statement of retroactivity, which there was, for example, in some other provisions of the Constitution, it, it, of, the, of the legislation, the court would not grant a retroactive meaning to Section 20 sub 10, and so Mr. de Toy's uh, case was um, case was denied by a unanimous court, I have to say. So that was another case that came up. It's very interesting that there was nothing between 1998 and 2009. There were several cases, as I say, on reviews of amnesty, but they never made it to the Constitutional Court. And then, more recently, there was another case, and this was an interesting case. Um, it was brought actually by uh, an NGO, the Centre for Study of Violence and Reconciliation, initially, and it related to a proposal by President Becky to set up a process to pardon convicted prisoners who had never applied for amnesty under the TRC process, but who argued 
that the offences they'd committed had been committed for political purposes. Now, a little bit of unpacking of this is necessary. Most of these convicted prisoners, it would seem, although the papers before the court didn't make it completely clear, and I didn't sit in this matter, but as I understand it, um, most of these prisoners were people who had been members of the Inkata Freedom Party, and many of them had committed crimes in the period between 1990 and 1994, at a time when the violence in KwaZulu-Natal was running at a very high level. And because the general attitude of the IFP to the whole transitional process, which was which was largely a, we're not going to be involved, although at the last minute they did get involved, most of these IFP self-asserted cadres had never applied for amnesty. There's been an ongoing political struggle in KZN between the African National Congress and the IFP, and it's not clear to me how related this initiative of President Mbeki was related to the underlying political issues in the province. But it's not impossible, uh, put it uh, in an understated way, that there were some relations there. But anyway, so what the president did was he has a power of pardon under Section 84 of the Constitution, rather like a prerogative power of pardon in a Commonwealth society, the Commonwealth Constitution. And he said, I'm going to create a pardon reference group or reference committee to who is going to look at all of these applications and give me a report as to whether indeed in each case their crime was committed for a political purpose or not. He described it as the unfinished business of the TRC. And the issue that came before the Constitutional Court was whether the president was required to give victims of the crimes a hearing before granting pardons to the specific group of prisoners. So that's where the NGO interest came in. And of course that's how the TRC had originally functioned. And the court's decision was that given that this process was set up to effectively achieve the same objectives as the TRC, being <coughs> nation building and national reconciliation, and was modelled on the TRC, the participation of victims was an essential element of the process and that the deny, denial of a hearing to the victims was irrational and therefore unconstitutional. I think it's quite widely accepted that this is a bit of a stretch, this decision, because the level of constitutional reviewability of the president's power of pardon is pretty constrained. But on the other hand, this was a very specific TRC-like proposal. And what is interesting running through the judgment is an account of what the TRC um, stood for. So that's the court material. Having given you a kind of overview of the TRC and the court material, I want to finish off by moving away from law to some extent and assessing the TRC in some other ways. The TRC has been criticised quite widely on a whole range of grounds. I think some of it has been uh, the fact that the issue of injustice and inequality remain live and deeply rooted in South Africa and so the, some of the goals the TR, TRC set for itself, which was you know, to bring about reconciliation and, and harmony and all of that, um, seemed um, not to have been achieved. Uh, almost certainly, to the extent the TRC did make those kind of claims, they were, they were unrealistic claims. But I think it is important, and, and then there are, well, the, I think it is important to note that there was something more to the work of the Commission then perhaps a lawyer's account might actually capture. So I thought I would um, take some of the notes. Anki Kroch, I think, has written some of the most moving accounts of the TRC. Um, her, her book, uh, Country of My Skull, I really highly recommend. 
But she also wrote about, in, a, in an, a more recent piece, about language and the TRC. And this is a little bit where we come close to the work of Ox piece, because she looked at the Isikosa meanings in the TRC and the words that were used there. And in Isikosa, the TRC was called the Ikemoshoni Yenyani, which is truth, nor Kolewaniso, which is Kosa for and reconciliation. So, nor is the stem for and, and ukolo lewaniso comes from the noun ukolo, which means peace, and from the verb ukokolo, to become satisfied. So, her view was that there was something quite close between the kosa stem and the meaning of forgiveness, and the meaning of peace, and the meaning of satisfaction, which she thinks was very meaningful to participants. And in fact, there's some interesting studies which show that of all the participants in the, in the TRC, people who generally thought it came closest to achieving its purpose were Isikosa speakers. Now, that could just be an accident. It could also be that um, the, some of the worst offences actually did come in the Eastern Cape, and a lot of the hearings were held in the Eastern Cape. I don't know. But... I do think that the ways in which people respond to these hearings is, is, very, is very interesting. And I think that partly because I think very often legal processes are very unsatisfying. Um, so perhaps there was something here which we shouldn't entirely dismiss, even if we shouldn't get too, um, too uh, sort of proud of it as well. So Cynthia Ngewu was the mother of one of the Gugulehtu seven who were killed by the security police, a young man, her son, and she met with one of the perpetrators during the hearings, which was something that, in fact, the TRC actively recommended. And after the meeting, she said, translated from Isikosa, this thing called reconciliation, if I am understanding it correctly, if it means this perpetrator, this man who has killed my son Christopher Pete, if it means he becomes human again, this man, so that I, so that all of us get our humanity back, then I agree, and then I support it all. So many commentators see this statement as encapsulating an African ethic of Ubuntu. Um, and there's no doubt that many observers who watch these processes felt that at least sometimes, in some places, there was some element of this at play. Anki Kroch, of course, is one of those. And she argues that Mrs. Ngewu's statement affirms how someone who'd be regarded by many as not effectively literate, let alone schooled in African philosophy, intimately understood her interconnectedness and could formulate it succinctly. I argue that it is precisely this inherent and general understanding and knowledge of interconnectedness towards wholeness that underpinned most of the testimonies delivered before the TRC and was largely responsible for the absence of revenge and the way anger was articulated. To put it differently, the daily living of interconnectedness, and not simply Christianity, was the determining factor in making the TRC work. So that's a one view. Uh, and, you know, generally, I think with these things, um, there are more than one views, and perhaps quite often all of them are right. The other view is that some critics see the embrace of the perpetrator as a false consciousness manipulated by the ANC in order to uh, cement its power in a post uh, post-apartheid South Africa. Uh, Richard Wilson is one of these, and he said, Ubuntu should be recognized for what it is, an ideological concept with multiple meanings which conjoins human rights, restorative justice, reconciliation, and nation-building within a populist language of Pan-Africanism. 
In post-apartheid South Africa, it became the Africanist rapping used to sell a re reconciliatory version of human rights talk to black South Africans. So that's the blunt other version. And as I say, there, I don't think one can necessarily argue that one or other is, is the only truth. And I wonder, because one of the things that struck me about the Kailicha Commission, uh, which, which um, I chaired with a, a colleague in Kailicha some years ago, was how quite a few of the witnesses said, thought that they were testifying before a TRC. So they were telling the accounts of their family about uh, police brutality again. And, and it was when we originally were planning the hearings, we were wondering whether we should put people through the, the trauma of having to testify in public about terrible things that had happened to family members. But after a lot of discussion, and we, we got the strong sense that people wanted to testify. And in fact, when people did testify, they often said, and so I came to the Truth Commission to tell the story about my family. So there is this some sense that there is, you know, political and social practices create uh, social memories and there is some sense that what happened before the TRC is still in the minds of people and this idea that justice can come in different forms, one of which is just acknowledgement of what you have lived through, I think still is embedded in South African communities. And it's, I say that not because I think that, um, that it's enough, this form of justice, but that it is something we shouldn't too rationally dismiss. So, concluding thoughts. The grant of amnesties was a key demand in the negotiation process, and the establishment of the TRC permitted this demand to be met, while at the same time acknowledging the experience of victims and seeking to build a common history, at least in relation to apartheid murders and other gross human rights violations. There was a practical side to this as well, which is that prosecutions would have been enormously challenging, and in fact the two major prosecutions that did follow when people did not apply for amnesty weren't successful. Nevertheless, most of the applications for amnesty were for rank-and-file foot soldiers, both the apartheid security forces and members of the liberation movements. No leaders applied for amnesty, and almost no prosecutions had taken place. The goal of the TRC, achieving national reconciliation, was overambitious. Undoing the harm and bitterness wrought by centuries of colonialism and four decades of apartheid policy in a process that lasted two years was never going to be possible. Nevertheless, many participants in the hearings undoubtedly found them moving and meaningful. The greatest criticism, I think, at the end of the day, probably goes to the narrow remit of the TRC, as the TRC itself acknowledged in its report. Defining gross human rights violations only in terms of gross kind of common law crimes uh, probably wasn't enough to capture the evil that was wrought by apartheid and and in some ways, I think that if we have set a common ground that the apartheid state did commit gross human rights violations, we have yet to build common ground on just how harmful apartheid was for ordinary South Africans who lived through their experience, particularly amongst white South Africans. Thank you.